So it's our mini-series, Six Magnificent Mustard Seeds. We've been looking at six radical teachings of Jesus, which if we live them out, if we let them sink into our hearts and and really, really try and do them, uh, they they have a radical effect uh, on the way we live our lives. Um, And they will give us the maximum impact on the world around us. Um, So we've been looking at uh, oh, sorry, and this was based on as well the premise that uh, this quote from Rick Warren, that actually we probably know a larger percentage of the Bible than we actually live out, that actually what we know isn't always what we live, and that's this series is kind of addressing that. Actually, we want to we be more of a living church than just a knowing church and knowing people. So the, the ones we looked at so far, uh, we started off with, with Matt Ashworth looking at conflict, and we was talking about the, the t- taking the, the plank out of our own eyes before... We removed the speck from someone else's. And then we looked at hurt and forgiveness. Chris did a fantastic talk looking at, uh, at forgiveness and, and the need to forgive and the, and the challenge that is to us. And actually, what we're looking at this morning kind of sits hand in hand with that. Um, and I'm, I'm deliberately not going to cover some of the stuff that Chris covered because otherwise you're getting the same talk. And I was sitting there with Chris was preaching, saying, that, that's part of my talk. I'm going to have to take it out on it. Um, but really, I guess my talk and Chris's talk kind of complement each other. So if you haven't heard Chris's talk on forgiveness or you want to hear it again, it will be up on the website soon. I really encourage you to listen to that one because it does have a big effect on what we're looking at this morning as well. And then Matt last week with his pie, if you remember, preaching about success and the slice of pie that we, we try and get out of the world and, and, and talking about not wanting to fall for, for what this world judges as success, but actually look at, at, what, at what God judges as success and being satisfied and oriented on a life filled with Christ. And today we're looking at our fourth mustard seed. And I think this is possibly one of the most challenging of all of Jesus' teaching, to be honest. It's one which will probably trouble pretty much all of us at some point, uh, at one point or another. And it's this. And I apologise for the cheesy picture. Matthew five forty four. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know what your first reaction is when you hear those words, when you think, love my enemies, pray for those who persecute you. For many, it's probably this. If you remember Kevin, the teenager, that is so unfair. Why do we have to do this? And it's probably, that's a natural reaction, isn't it? It it feels a little bit unfair. It's one thing to love our neighbours, those people who are on the same wavelength as us, those people who, who are kind to us and nice to us and we get on with. And even that's hard sometimes. But to love an enemy, to love someone who is actively opposed to us and hostile to us, why should we love them when they don't show the same to us? Why should we bother trying to be kind to them and love them when it's likely to be rejected and thrown back in our faces? Surely there's some exceptions. Surely Jesus couldn't have meant this literally. I think straight away there's, there's almost a temptation to start thinking of the enemies in our lives and the reasons why we might be excused from having to love them. The reasons why we might actually, you know, we'd have to take this literally. So let's, let's play with this. I'm going to show a series of people on the screen. And I've set up this scale, 1 to 10. And as we go through, I want you to think about your personal response. Shout it out if you want. On the scale of 1 to 10, 1 being, they're, they're, quite, they're quite easy to love. And ten being impossible. I can't love this person. They're just too hard to love. And let's see what we come up with. Well, this, the evil dictator. 
Could be Hitler, could be anyone. How hard do you think this guy is to love? Ten, nine, pretty hard, pretty hard. The school bully. And this will be clouded by your own personal experience. Some of you may have been bullied at school and you might be thinking, oh, ten. Some of you, Ken, Ian, you might have been the bully at school. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I can love them. I understand what it was like to be a school bully. <laughs> what, about, what about that one, school bully? Where, where do we think? Five, anyone else? Seven, four, so there's a bit of a range. What about the nasty neighbour? Matt Hatch on our weekend away talked about having a neighbour who was really being quite horrible and, and really persecuting his family. For, so for him, that might be a, an eight or a nine. This, this, this is a hard-to-love person. Others of you, you might have nice neighbours and it's not a problem. What about the religious radical? What about a member of Islamic State? How do we feel about them? Zero. Easy to love. Good. 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 We'll come to that. That's all right. We're going to preach. That's fine. <laughs> the thief who burgled your house. Anyone been burgled? How much love do you feel for that guy? Who came into your house, who invaded your personal space and, and took your belongings. It's hard, isn't it? Again, a bit of a range. What about the child murderer? What about Myra Hindley? Someone who has taken children and, and killed them. Cold-blooded. How hard is it to love these people? Well, the politician whose specific policies have a massive effect on you. I know we've got some junior doctors. I don't know if there's many here today, but Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, they're all at work. I'm in work, Jeremy. <laughs> we'll send him the recording. But if you've got a politician who you feel is actively coming down on you, whose policies, whose way of doing things is really nailing down what you do, it's quite hard to feel love for them, isn't it? And you feel that almost righteous anger at them. Simon Cowell. <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a category for him. It's just Simon Cowell. How hard is it to love Simon Cowell? <laughs> I think what I'm trying to show here, guys, is we have a whole range of emotive responses when we see different people who can be different kinds of enemies to us. Now, some people are big picture enemies. I'm talking about, you know, the people who generally by society, 99% of society would say, this is an enemy. This is a bad, this is, you know, a Hitler or an Islamic State or something like that, who most people would say, that's, that they're a bad person, they're an enemy, they're an enemy to the, to the state almost. It's almost, in society, universally acceptable to hate them. That's what our society would say. You wouldn't find many arguments if you discussed these people with your friends in the pub or wherever it is and you declared them unlovable. I don't think you get many arguments. And others on that list might be more personal enemies, people who might not have committed a major crime, might not have committed some of the atrocities that, that these other people have, but they've done something very personal to us. They've upset us and antagonized us on a very personal level. It might be a, a bad boss or a, a horrible neighbor or a school bully or something. But for you, that, as an individual, that person is an enemy that you find very, very hard to love. And it's likely that we all have this kind of subconscious line in our heads, a response that says, no, this person has gone too far. I just, I can't get around it. I can't love them. I find it too difficult. They've caused me too much pain. 
either personally to me or in life in general. I just can't get past a point where I can love this person. And there's been all sorts of scholarly arguments made to suggest that Jesus had these sort of lines in mind as he spoke these words. Clearly, surely, he couldn't have extended the idea of love your enemy to absolutely anyone. Could he? There must be some exceptions. Surely. I know over in America, I read an article this week, the idea of loving your enemy in a very Christian country is held sacred. They, they really do want to believe that. But at the same time, they cling to the right to bear arms and to kill. And there's this quote in, in, a, in a blog. So not every American, but a lot of Americans. So it says this, Whereas the Bible says that love is patient and kind, that love is not self-seeking, and all that other inconvenient stuff, for many of us, enemy love ends up looking radically different from the biblical definition. Instead of love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-seeking, love never fails, it becomes love is patient, love is kind, love blows their head off if they break into my house. And I think for many people, or maybe not quite as extreme as that, but for many people there is a line, isn't there? There's a line where, you know what, if you annoy me enough, if you upset me enough, I'm not going to love you. You're going to be outside of my love. I'm sorry, I, I just can't. I can't do it. The problem with that is that Jesus didn't actually leave any gaps for any people to slip through from his love. I don't think there's any caveats, actually, where we can argue, ah, he didn't mean that person. He didn't mean we have to love them. Actually, if we look at the wider passage, we see he pretty much covers all of the ground. Let me read this. This is... The passage which that verse is, is sat with, and it's all within the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' amazing, long uh, collection of wisdom and, and teaching that turned, turned the world's view up on, up, up, up on its head. It says this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know if you can spot in there, but there's a whole range of different types of enemies in that passage. Verse 44, he talks specifically about those people who persecute you. So that enemy, enemy love, in Jesus' eyes, extends to people who actively persecute us. And whether that's a mild annoyance of a, a, a dodgy neighbor who's, who's making our life a little bit miserable, a bit petty, or through actual serious harm and attack and destruction. You think of Christians out in, in difficult countries where they're actually being physically, violently persecuted. Jesus' love of his enemies stretches to that. Even if someone is hell-bent on making our lives a misery, for whatever reason, whether it's because of our faith, or our race, or our gender, whatever it is, we're to love them. That's what Jesus says. In verse 45, he talks about evil, people who are evil. He says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the, and the good. 
enemy love extends to evil people. People who are morally and ethically bad. People who are wicked and live in a way that brings intolerable pain and suffering to others. It may not be personal pain to us. They may never actually do something that hurts us individually. They might be more like you know, uh, someone in ISIS or, or, or we look at some of the dictators we looked at. But their intent is to bring evil to society at large for their own benefit. And yes, we're to love them. We're to love them. Verse 46, he talks about the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous, people who break God's law. People who, when judged by God, will be found guilty and sinful. Jesus doesn't leave us the option of keeping love to within the cozy confines of our churches and our families and our Christian communities. We cannot judge someone else as not worthy of our love based on the way that they live their life and their apparent standing before God. We're to love them. I can't think of many exceptions to these, can you? There's not really any gaps. There's not really anyone you can say, oh, well, you know, butters, you're forgetting this person. This one person who I can make the perfect excuse for. I don't have to love this person. They've hurt me too much. You're forgetting this one. There's a gap. I, can, I, can, you know, I don't have to love this person. I don't think there is. I don't think there is. We're called to love our enemies in whatever form they take. If you are in that position, if you've got someone in mind and you're thinking, no, I'm just, I can't do it. I can't love that person. Then I'd say stop for a moment. Because if the moment we do that, it's the moment we ignore an absolutely huge elephant in the room. That's an elephant in the room. <laughs> and the elephant in the room, if you can see, has a Bible verse written on it, Romans 5, verse 10. And that verse is this. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Ouch. Right between the eyes, isn't it? This is Paul writing in Romans some time after Jesus' words, but it really does shatter any argument that we might have against what Jesus is telling us in, in loving our enemies. Jesus tells us, love your enemies. Everything in us screams, that's unfair. But Paul reminds us that we ourselves, every single one of us, are enemies who have been loved. And in the most dramatic way possible. Remember, we looked at the different kinds of enemies which Jesus described, the persecutors, the evil, the unrighteous. Well, we may in various degrees fit into those categories, but at least to God, all of us, in fact, every human bar one who's ever lived, fall in the category of being an unrighteous enemy of God. The Bible tells us we are created by God. He loves us and he has a plan for each of us. He delights in each of us. He longs to have a relationship with each of us. Do you know what? Our human response to that through history has been to throw that back in his face. To frequently choose our own plans, our own desires, our own choices. And to reject God. 
And in doing that, we've made ourselves unrighteous and we've made ourselves enemies of God, as Paul puts it. Not one human being other than Jesus has managed to avoid, Romans says this, falling short of God's glory. Not one person has managed to avoid falling short of the glory of God, of God's standards, and being effectively an enemy of God. And it's the same word in the, in the, in the Greek, the same word for enemy that Jesus used, that was, was translated as Jesus used, and the same word that Paul uses. This word, uh, ekthros, is a word about being hostile, being openly uh, opposed, being in enmity, being in opposition, being an enemy of God. It, it's an active opposition to God. And that is how Paul describes our status before God, before the intervention of Jesus. Without Jesus, we are in active opposition to God. We are hostile to him. There's no relationship with him. When he sees us, he sees an opponent. Someone who cannot be judged righteous. Someone who is not on his side and is doing things their own way. But what's God's reaction to that? If God was sitting in that seat and was looking at my PowerPoint slide and we flashed up on that screen and God had to put us on that scale of 1 to 10, how hard is this person to love? Can you love them? What do you think he'd do? He loves us because he made us. There's a bond that can't be broken. But how easy is it to love someone who you've made, who you love so much, and yet you see them constantly reject and hurt you and upset you and reject you. Any parent will know how hurtful it is when your child is being so rebellious and difficult. When they're just refusing to go the way that you need them to go. You love them, they're a part of you, but they're just being so willfully disobedient and upsetting. How hard is it to love in that moment when actually all you want to do is chuck them out of a window or something? I've never chucked my children out of a window, just name. And that's not even close to the rejection and the hurt God must feel. Knowing us so intimately, loving us so much, seeing us reject him so spectacularly. It would be so hard not to become bitter and twisted. But Paul tells us, in that situation, faced with an enemy which deserved nothing but rejection, God reconciled that enemy to him through the death of his son. How loving is that? Knowing that in our hostility and as an enemy we could not possibly rectify the situation ourselves, God chose to love us and made a way for us to no longer be in opposition to him. Our hostility deserved only punishment and rejection, but God placed all of that on his own son, on Jesus. And Jesus deserved none of it. He's the only person who's ever lived who was not an enemy of God in some, in some way, who never disobeyed or rejected him. But in that perfection, he was able to bear the weight of our rejection of God, of our enemy, and cleanse us. And I think knowing that makes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount all the more profound. He's calling people to love their enemies, which in itself is remarkable. But he's doing that knowing full well that very, very shortly his father's love for his enemies would see himself nailed to a cross and murdered in full view of the public. Jesus knew that was coming. 
as he stood there telling us to love his enemies, he knew what that meant for himself. He knew the suffering that that was going to cause to himself. But he knew. He knew that he loved us enough to do it. He doesn't try and get himself off the hook. Jesus was prepared to say the words that would ultimately mean death to him and life for us. Because of God's love for us, his enemies, we are forgiven. Because of God's love for his enemies, we are adopted into his family. Because of God's love for us, his enemies, we have the promise of eternal life with him. Absolutely incredible. Loving your enemies isn't just a nice, virtuous thing to try and do and give us a moral high ground, but it actually can achieve a profound effect. That's what it's done for us. It's turned our life, our status completely around and God doing that for us. That's really the central point of the, of the talk. So if you go away with nothing more than that, take that, that once we were enemies, that's the elephant in the room. If you're struggling to love an enemy this morning, just remember that once we all were enemies of God and we sit here today knowing that because God loved us as his enemies, we're okay. But I want to just look at some of the, tease some points out of this, some practicalities out of this. Three things. It's always three things. The first thing is uh, making disciples and not being doormats. The second is prayer, not passivity. And the third thing is uh, being proactive and not reactive. So the first thing, making disciples and not being doormats. I think one of the things that sticks in our throat a bit when we hear love your enemy is the idea that actually your enemy gets away scot-free. That they get to walk away and walk all over us. That we become a doormat. We humbly and obediently love them. We do the nice, Christian, loving thing. We show them kindness and sometimes they just get to do as they please. And they get to carry on as if nothing happened. I don't believe that's what Jesus has in mind when he tells us to love our enemies. Because I think loving our enemies has to go hand in hand with the ultimate great commission that Jesus gives to all of us. To go and to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. The ultimate aim of loving our enemies is not to let them win. It's not to let them have their wicked way and enjoy it. But most, it must surely be to help bring about a change in their lives. As has been done for us. That in being loved by us, that they see something of God. That they recognize there is another way to do life that has a much more satisfactory outcome for everyone involved. Because after all, that is our story, isn't it? Remember, we were enemies of God, but we were shown love. And our response to that is to realize the error of our ways, to repent and to turn to God. That love for us has changed our lives around them. That is the goal of us continuing to love our enemies. We're now disciples and we're given that commission to go and make more disciples. So part of us showing love to our enemies is pointing them to the love of God to try and rescue them. To try and bring them back from the path that they're on which may ultimately lead to destruction. Either by our words or our prayers or our actions. No one, no one is too far from the love of God that they cannot be rescued and brought back into a relationship with him. 
no one. And that means sometimes, in a loving way, we need to balance the showing of love and the kindness with actually challenging of people's behavior with truth and with action. And actually, if we look at the life of Jesus, that was his model. Who were his main hostile enemies on earth when he lived? Probably the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities. They were the ones who ultimately brought around the arrest and and crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, was obedient to death, of course. And some people might look at that and say, well, he was just a doormat. He let them walk all over him. He let his enemies win. But I think if you look at the stories in in the Bible, the Pharisees did not simply get away with walking all over Jesus. Time and time again, Jesus constantly challenged them challenged their understanding of scripture, challenged the way they were living their lives, taught them fresh truths, even in this very passage, through what he said in his teaching and what he did in his miraculous acts of kindness and blessing, all with the desire that they would repent, that they would experience relationship with God full of grace and joy, rather than a relationship of rules and one-upmanship. Jesus wasn't violent in his opposition to his enemies. But he was resolute at times. He called a spade a spade. He stood up for justice when he found injustice. So we must have confused loving our enemies with being walked all over. As we love them, we need to show them who God is. We need to show them the light. We need to show them truth. Because part of loving them is showing them who God is. Matthew 22, if you get a chance to read just through that, there's five or six examples of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees repeatedly trying to trick Jesus and catch him out with testing questions. Jesus didn't love them by falling for their tricks and letting them have their way. He called them out. He taught them more about who God was. He gave them answers which he knew were going to challenge them and even embarrass them at times because he wanted them to know there's a a different way and a better way to live. And the Bible, I put a verse up there as well in Isaiah. It tells us not to simply let people get away with evil. Yes, we love them, but we don't just let them get away with evil. This is a verse that we have up around. It's the right verse, isn't it, Barry? 117, Isaiah, the one we use. We use it from the message, don't we, so it looks a bit different. I think it's the right one. Anyway, we have this up on the walls of the Big Help Project a lot. Isaiah says this, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case. Of the widow. Even as we love our enemies, there is at times a need to react against them and to rally against what they're doing, to point out the injustice and to fight for justice. But hand in hand with the Great Commission, guys. Hand in hand with the intent of leading them to a better way. And that means viewing our opponents, viewing our enemies as God views them as his loved and accepted creation. As people who are intended for a relationship with him and who have simply veered off course, no matter how dramatically. It's a difficult balance to strike, but it is an important one. Often, being honest, as we try and do this, we will feel like we're banging our heads against a brick wall. We'll feel like it's having no effect whatsoever. We'll feel like all this love that we're pouring out, all this pointing people to God, we'll feel like it's having no effect, and sometimes it might not. 
but actually a lot of times often more than we know it our loving stance our resolute stance may one day be the thing that helps to turn a hostile heart back to God that's what it's done for us and it can have the same effect if we can keep going with it okay second thing is prayer and not passivity is passivity a word I think it is passiveness passivity whatever is it a word excellent (laughs) I sometimes just make them up following on from the first point Jesus is very clear in one of the ways that we are to love our enemies and, and Kathy mentioned this before pray for those who persecute you this is an absolute key central step to loving our enemies we know loving our enemies is hard it's a hard hard thing to do it is emotionally sometimes physically draining and it is against some of our intuition Chris CB as I said did an incredible job in his talk on forgiveness a few weeks back and I again urge people to listen to that to think to look at the forgiveness aspect the the, the ability to try and forgive people when they've hurt us but you know what we have a really powerful weapon which enables us to react in the right way which helps us gradually to love those who are our enemies and that's prayer the act of actively going to God and asking him to help us to love our enemies and pray for them in fact praying for our enemy our enemies is one of the, the most loving things that we can do if that is all you do you've done well You've done so well. Prayer is a powerful, effective weapon. I put this quote up. This is from from John Piper, an uh, American pastor and theologian. He says this, Prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love because it means that you have to really want that something good to happen for them. You might do nice things for your enemy without any genuine desire that things go well for them. But prayer for them is in the presence of God who knows your heart and prayer is interceding with God on their behalf. It may be for their conversion. It may be for their repentance. It may be that they would be awakened to the enmity in their hearts. It may be that they will be stopped in their downward spiral of sin even if it takes a disease or calamity to do it. But the prayer Jesus has in mind here is always for their good. Does that make sense? As we go to God in that sacred place, in that place where God knows us intimately, any jealousy, any bitterness, any anger, any malice can melt away. As we, as we draw close to our loving Father, as we see people through his eyes and not ours, as we go to God and say, God, Help me to love this person. Help them to know you. It's a powerful, profound, loving thing to do. And it will help us to get the right perspective on the situation we're in. When we are face to face in prayer with the Savior who loved us as his enemies, we can view our enemies through his loving eyes. We can see them in, in the light that he sees them. We don't come in prayer to see our enemies get harmed or get their just deserts. But we pray that they might be changed and awoken to the love that God has for them.
because that is the only thing that will truly transform them. In our own power, in our own ability to argue and step up and fight, we can't change them. It is God who does the changing. And in going to God, we're doing the most powerful and profound thing that we can do. And we do it in the full knowledge that like when we were God's enemies, they don't deserve it. We didn't deserve our forgiveness. They don't deserve their forgiveness. But God loves them. And that's what he wants to give them. If they will only turn and repent. And so we go asking God that they would receive what we received. That they will know what we know. A loving saviour that turns their life around. It goes a huge way to softening our own hearts. And actually enabling us not only to pray in love for them. But then actually to act lovingly towards them. It's not a cop out. Prayer is not a cop out. If it is the only thing we can bring ourselves to do, it's a very, very good start. And I believe as we pray more for our enemies, actually, it leads us to, to more action as well. Okay, final thing. Our love for our enemies, I believe, is to be proactive, not just reactive. Your love for our enemies demands that we actively go beyond the intimate circles of our family and our friends and our community. Jesus stresses in the passage, if we only greet our own people, what are we doing differently to the rest of the world? Even non-Christians, even our enemies, will show love and kindness to those closest to them. And that's no problem at all. It's, it's easy to love people when they're loving us back, when they're close to us. There's a huge amount to be said for reacting in a loving manner when we are treated badly by an enemy. Or even a friend who hurts us. But I actually think this is a call to go beyond our regular confines. To actively do more. To do extra. To go out and seek those who are not with us. To the world which may be hostile to us. To actively love people on the front foot. Not waiting to be attacked before we have an opportunity to show them some love. Does that make sense? It's vital that we get this. If we restrict our loving one another to those around us, then all we have done is set up a club which makes its members feel nice and cozy and has no impact on the world around it. That's not what we're called to do. We're marked out to be different. Someone once said, it's on the screen there, the church is the only organization which exists for the benefit of its non-members. We're not to shut ourselves away to be an exclusive club of believers who have a nice time together on a Wednesday night and a Sunday morning, or a Thursday night if you're in Jack and Sheila's group. We're to be actively seeking opportunities to show our love to those who are hostile to us, to those who are opposed to us, to the unrighteous and the evil and the persecutors. In our missional work, we're not just called to reach out to the nice couple who live next door and we could really see them as a Christian one day. They're so lovely, which is great, by the way. We, we want to do that. But we're also to reach the social outcast who seems a million miles away from our comfort zone. We're also to reach those who are openly hostile and have contempt for us. Those who have no interest in a friendship with us. Those who don't want to know us. We're supposed to go and love them as well. And that's what we've tried to do so far in Freedom Church and, and also the Big Help Project. We've tried to put things on ministries and uh, action projects and events which communicate the love of Jesus indiscriminately. 
even to those people who, who haven't particularly wanted to hear it. For example, the park event we're going to do in July, anyone could turn up to that and benefit from it and be blessed by it, whether they're a friend, f friend of ours and down the street or a neo-Nazi who happens to be walking through the park and sees our bouncy castle and wants to have a good time. It doesn't matter. We put it on for everyone indiscriminately, whether they love us, whether they're, whether they're actively hate us. We want to show them our love, show them that we want to bless them. Baby basics, we've never met the people that receive our baskets of, of baby goods. And it could be that some of these baskets go to, be, I don't know, anyone. It could be uh, someone, a Muslim who sympathizes with Islamic State. Could be, I don't know. It could be an angry atheist who's got a blog denouncing God and who's constantly writing about, about God not existing. Could be. And yet they receive our basket. And in there is, is a card and a blessing and a, a Bible verse maybe with a message of Christian love and hope. And the food banks, the Big Health Project runs. Our chair, Peter Mitchell, often talks about what happens if someone comes into our food bank with 666 tattooed on their forehead and a T-shirt saying, I love Satan. What do we do? The answer is we feed them. We feed them just like anyone else who comes in. And that's what marks us out. Acts of love to those people who expect to receive it from us are great. And, and, and we've built this very carefully, a community that loves each other, that shows hospitality to each other. We want to love one another. And everything we do in this community, that's fantastic. But what marks us out are the acts of love that we give to the people who least expect to, to receive it. Those who know that they are actually in some way, opposition to us and our faith. When we do that, that is remarkable. And it's also disarming. It changes people's perceptions and can melt away their hostility to us and allow them to see something of God. It's a very, very powerful thing. And if we can grasp how to keep doing that, we will make waves and we will see some of our enemies turn into God and knowing him just like we did ourselves. So in closing, just to, I guess, to summarize what I've said. Loving our enemies is incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. But if we're struggling with it, try and remember the elephant in the room, that we were once ourselves enemies of God. And we sit here saved and knowing God today only because he chose to love us as we are his enemy and if we can remember that and use it to transform how we act and feel about those who are enemies to us that will be amazing in our interactions with our enemies as we try to love them remember our love for them goes in hand in hand with the great commission an enemy to us is still a potential disciple of God and our, our acts and our words can lead and teach them who God is to show them a better way. Loving them doesn't mean we're letting them walk all over them, all over us. But actively demonstrating the love of God, which has transformed us, can do the same to them. If you're stuck, what to do? If you're not sure how to live this out, do the simplest and most effective thing. Pray. There can be no more sincere and loving act than to bring your enemies to God in prayer. And it has the added advantage of transforming us too as we do it.
And guys, let's love our enemies intentionally and proactively rather than reactively. Let's be a church which seeks actively to bless everyone, even those hostile to us. And as we do this, it disarms our enemies and it gives us the opportunity to minister to them.